Good morning. What a great and glorious day to serve our God and Savior in worship. I'm truly thankful to be here this morning. And I think that's maybe something we uh, take for granted sometimes, but it is truly a blessing to be here amongst brethren of, of like-minded faith. I'm also thankful for this opportunity that has been given to me um, and entrusted in me to rightfully handle God's word of truth. And I tell you in good faith that I do not take that responsibility lightly. Everything I say this morning is not going to be anything, likely nothing new that you've never heard before. At least I hope it wouldn't be. It's not going to be anything of my own opinion or anything of my own creation, but rather what I have found to be the truth of God's revealed truth uh, to all men. And I hope that it will be in some way beneficial to you and in your life. As a child, I had a great love and a great interest um, in basketball, as I'm sure many of you know. Uh, I remember I would read any book about basketball or, or professional basketball players, anything I could get my hands on, and sometimes reading those books over and over, uh, even just the same ones over and over again. Everything I had, I, I dreamed about was something to do with basketball. And I constantly dreamed of being this professional athlete and as I'm sure many, many children do. And I remember spending literally hours and hours playing, practicing, analyzing, and even studying the game. Uh, just even as, even as a child, even as young as a child. Now obviously these dreams didn't, didn't exactly pan out, but I eventually learned that my life had more purpose in, than playing basketball. Um, but there was the one time that I would like to mention uh, that I remember I was reading a book uh, I believe it was a, ch- a children's book about Michael Jordan and his life uh, some of him if you don't know some of him uh, some people believe him to be the, the greatest athlete to play basketball of course that's up to debate but anyways in this book uh, it describes Jordan's life as a child and all the different things that he would do and I remember reading uh, really with the intent of emulating all the things that he did so that I could become a great athlete just like him. And it got to a part where he started describing how he would spend a majority of Sundays uh, practicing and and playing basketball. And I remember saying something to my dad about how, well, I can't do that. And what a terrible disadvantage that was for me compared to all these other kids that have the same dreams as me. And I remember he said something along the lines of us having greater priorities in our lives than just basketball. And even as a child, I knew that he was right. And I knew, I think it was right then and there that I realized how difficult becoming a professional uh, professional basketball player would be for me. I realized the amount of commitment that it would take for me to accomplish something like that. And I realized that I would have to comprom- maybe even compromise my faith for, this, uh, for something like that to be achieved. For that kind of greatness, my other priorities would have to take a back seat and to be sacrificed. Um, so obviously that was not an option for me. Uh, but it definitely taught me about the absolute commitment and sacrifices that it would cost for me to be the best, to be the best at something. And I developed a great amount of respect for athletes, such as those even in the recent Olympics that I'm sure many of us watched, uh, who have to commit their very being just to compete for a shot at a medal. Really, the absolute control that they have over their bodies and their skill that it takes to do what they do is truly incredible. And it's why so many people watch the Olympics and watch professional athletes in general. And I truly do admire the discipline that it takes to be the best. The problem is obviously that they are competing for the wrong thing. And I mention all of this because we can learn a lot of, learn a lot from these athletes. After all, we are also athletes. The difference is that we do not compete for an earthly prize or title. And this brings me to our lesson today. Paul compares our spiritual walk to that of a physical athlete in 1 Corinthians 9. If you'd like to turn there, that's 1 Corinthians 9, 
verse 24 through 27. Here he's just finished discussing the links that he had he had to go to sacrifice, sorry, the links he had to go and the sacrifice he had to make uh, to spread the gospel to people of different cultures and backgrounds. And that leads him directly to verse 24, which reads, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And the same analogy is actually used in a passage in Hebrews. And I think it would be pretty impossible to use uh, to exclude this passage when making a lesson like this. That's Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. It reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Obviously, I think both these passages are very familiar to us. Uh, I know the Hebrews passage was one I used to use as a memory verse as a child. And I think that's why, that it's very, um, for this reason, a very simple and a very relatable analogy. One so simple that even a child could understand it. We're competing in a race, and the prize is heaven. And that's really the gist of it. But you know, I was, I was looking back at these passages. Some of them were mentioned in a few previous lessons, and I just couldn't help but thinking about a few things I had never recognized before. And I think that's really what I would like to share with you today, some of my insight in these passages. And then it's really about this aim to win. Beginning in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9, we, uh, we see Paul describing, I'll read it again, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And of course, this might seem at first glance to be a very simple and obvious point, uh, but I think there's an ideology that's quite entrenched in our society that directs, directly conf- conflicts with uh, this idea. And I admit that uh, I myself had to battle against that uh, vigilantly. Um, if you ever have heard the phrase, C's get degrees, you'll know what I'm talking about here. If you haven't, it is uh, used mostly in the context of school grades. Um, and it's essentially the idea that of doing the absolute minimum amount of work in order to pass your classes, which in turn uh, gets you your degree. However, once you buy into this idea for, for school, it starts to seep in to other things that you do too. For example, at work, when you, you maybe put in the least amount of effort possible just to keep yourself from getting fired, or undertaking maybe a personal project, but only putting in the very least amount of effort necessary to complete it. And it really starts to get dangerous when it seeps into our spiritual lives. Maybe if we're doing the bare minimum. If we're coming to church, but maybe not really engaging like we should be. If we're singing, but maybe not really paying attention to the words that we're singing. If we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, as we just did, but maybe we didn't focus on the significance of it, or why we're doing it in the first place. If we're reading the Bible, but we never actually take time to reflect on our own lives. If we're praying, but we're just repeating a couple things we've heard other people say. If we do the things that we are comfortable with, but we never step out of our comfort zones. If we're running, but we're not trying to win. Now, obviously, these things are, they could be uncomfortable for you to hear. Especially if it's something that maybe you need to get better at. And it certainly is not comfortable for me to say to you. And of course, I'm saying these things as much for myself as I am for you. When I was studying these things and going over these things, I couldn't help but notice that these are all things that I need to get better at too. Areas in which I need to improve and grow. 
So obviously you can see how this can become so extremely dangerous if we allow ourselves to implement this mentality in our spiritual lives. If we let it run rampant, then we are certainly in danger of losing that mansion in heaven. But of course, don't take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus has to say in Matthew 13. That's verse 44 beginning. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. These men do not sell most of what they have. They don't sell almost all of what they have. In both cases, each man sells every last thing that they have because the treasure or the pearl was of greater value. It also doesn't say that either man tried to bargain for it. They weren't looking for the best price that they could get. They immediately gave all that they had because the prize was worth so much more to them. These men understood that it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and they weren't going to let it go to waste. Being in the race for them wasn't good enough. They had to win. I'm also reminded of someone who did not fully commit, who did not have the same commitment and was not aiming to win. Um, and that is King Saul. And, his, and I'm sure many of us are familiar with this account and his encounter uh, with the Amalekites. I won't take time to read the entire account because uh, I have a feeling we're going to be short on time here. But um, here God sends Samuel to Saul to instruct him to utterly destroy Amalek and not spare anything because of how wicked these people uh, were being. And long story short, Saul goes and he defeats uh, only partial amount of that, that empire. But he leaves all the things of value for the people and for himself. And that brings us to verse 22, where Samuel comes uh, to bring the reckoning of the Lord. And he says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you, from being king. And of course there's a lot of points that could be made uh, regarding the actions of Saul and, and Samuel and, and even the people of Israel as a whole. Uh, but for the sake of time, let's focus here on Saul's priorities and where were they at. Well, he's told by God to utterly destroy Amalek and leave nothing behind. But what does he do? Well, he destroys mostly everything, I guess. He certainly partially obeyed because he did not... Uh, he didn't completely defeat Amalek, though. Um, he did not destroy everything. He chose to leave the things of value undamaged and for his own uh, taking. And this certainly, uh, this is certainly a lack of commitment to God and shows us where his real priorities were at. Saul was running, but he wasn't re- running to obtain the prize. And look where that led him in verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Certainly we don't want to fall into that same trap. And we also see the same point made in a different context and a different way by Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, which reads, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, we typically use this verse in the context of how we approach Scripture and how to analyze Scripture in such a way that we receive the Lord's good news accurately. Um, But really take notice of what Paul uses to start the verse. He doesn't say try. He doesn't say, if you can, do your best. He doesn't say, under the right circumstances, do your best. He says, do your best. And that doesn't mean what we may feel like is our best. It means what God knows to be our best, which in turn means we must constantly be improving and growing. After all, that is what God knows. Uh, that is what God knows we are capable of. Philippians three twelve through fourteen, beginning in verse twelve. Not that I have already obtained this 
or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to, the, to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press on. We aim to win because there's no other way that will get us the prize. Athletes know that they have to give their very best to win. Physical runners know that they have to run till they can't run anymore if they want to win. And it is no different for us. We give our best because anything less will not get us the prize. And so this is a race we must we must win. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, that's a pretty tall order. And you're right. It certainly is. Uh, those feelings you might have of being, feeling lost and hopeless uh, are, are pretty uh, accurate here. And, but don't worry. God doesn't leave us in the dark. So how can we aim to win like this, like Paul is trying to instill in us? What steps can we take in order to ensure that we are giving our best and that we're on track to win? Luckily, we don't have to look far for it. The answers are found in the first two passages, passages that I read this morning. Paul and the Hebrew writer mentioned several things we need to stay on top of. And that first thing being uh, self-control and, our, and their self-discipline. Immediately following verse 24 in the First Corinthians 9 passage, Paul talks about the importance of self-discipline as an athlete and certainly for us as well. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And then also in verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. As a physical athlete, you aren't going to get far uh, without a great deal of self, uh, self-control and discipline. You must make the difficult sacrifices that others who do not share your motive will not have to make. You'll have to get up early. you have to stay up late, lose sleep even. You'll have to train when others quit, when others have called it a day. You'll have to be willing to push yourself beyond the limits, beyond your limits, beyond what the body is willing to do. You'll have to be willing to give up everything if necessary. Otherwise, you're just not aiming to win. And it's not much different for us as a spiritual athlete. In the same way, we have to be willing to give up whatever is necessary in order to win the prize that has been promised to us if we do. We must be willing to discipline our bodies beyond earthly reason for the hope of the crown. It's a full committal to the Lord and maintaining that con- uh, consistent growth. That's the self-discipline and control that we need. Paul mentions this very idea in his letter to Titus. And beginning in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing, the appearing of the Lord, sorry, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now Paul has just finished explaining to Titus uh, what sound conduct within the church should look like and he actually mentions the importance of self-control amongst the brethren several times before this uh, which is actually what leads him to make this statement here Uh, the grace of God trains us to be self-controlled we give up these earthly passions and worldliness however tempting they may be because our blessed hope because of the blessed hope that's been ensured to us by Christ One of the biggest things I I take away from this passage is that self-control is not something you just turn on or turn off uh, when it best suits you. It says live self-controlled. It's a lifestyle. Uh, The NIV phrases the verse 12 a little differently, and I think it's worth noting. It reads, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And, you know, that phrasing really reminded me of, you know, the just say no to drugs campaign. Uh, which we've seen in the past, uh, which is definitely all about self-control. But it also reminded me of what Jesus tells Peter 
in Matthew 16, verse 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here we see Jesus quite literally saying no to ungodliness and sin, um, since Satan is using Peter in order to tempt um, him to sin. And certainly this took a great deal of self-control to react to Peter in this manner, to not give in to sin, especially seeing how much he cared for him. Um, but he didn't allow for that care for Peter to keep him from handling the work of the devil and the handling, handling sin. And just like Paul writes to Titus, Jesus does not hesitate to renounce sin, even on the most difficult circumstances. I actually recently gave an invitation regarding uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. And that reads, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And the point that I was making is that we cannot allow ourselves to be dominated by anything, even if it's not inherently sin. And I think that's a very important facet of what we're talking about here, of what our self-control needs to be. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, in the context here, Paul is talking about uh, defiling himself, or sorry, defying oneself uh, through sexual immorality. And that leads him to the verse I just read, where he points out that just because something isn't a sin doesn't mean it can't become a sin if we're not careful. Which is why Paul makes the statement um, that, that he will not be dominated by anything. If we allow ourselves to be tossed to and fro like that, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, we are certainly not pursuing self-control as we should be. Without self-control and discipline, we simply cannot possibly hope to win the prize. The next thing that he talks about is this imperishable wreath. And that is verse 25 of, again, 1 Corinthians 9. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Now, a wreath, if you're not familiar, is what they used to award the runner who came in first place back in uh, the old Olympics. Um, and it's certainly uh, something that's highly desired, a highly desired prize, and it's symbolic of that as well. Uh, and this is the kind of prize that these physical athletes, they chase. Um, but as, val- as valuable and as highly desired as that prize is, it is tel- uh, still temporary, and it's just like everything in this life. For example, I mean, how many gold medalists can you name from the Olympic Games? Maybe a few, maybe some of the big ones. Um, could you even come close to naming half of the winners from just the recent Olympics? I know I probably couldn't. Um, how about the winners from a few year, years ago? How about 100 years ago? See, the point I'm trying to make here is that Paul is, or sorry, that Paul is making is that uh, these physical athletes compete for a prize that is really unsatisfying. It's temporary, it's fading, and it's very easily forgotten. However, our prize is something far greater. As Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians, that's chapter 15, beginning in verse 50, beginning, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. At Judgment Day, we will rid ourselves of these temporary tents, as Peter refers to. These perishable, this perishable world will perish, and we will put on this imperishable, as Paul says here. Death will be done away with. Sin will have no more influence over us. 
we will achieve immortality that is promised to us. And all this because Jesus has won the victory for us. Our prize is something far greater, something beyond anything we can even imagine. Everything we have ever known either has or will perish, but this is the opposite of that. It's not really something that we can really even grasp, abiding with God for all eternity. But that is the prize that we have been promised. That's where our eyes should be focused. And even throughout all our troubles, we must remember, remember this very thing and where we belong. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 beginning, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is elsewhere. Think about that. We belong there. And even in this lost and dying world where we have no place, I think that's very incredible, incredibly significant and very comforting. So we can't get caught up and attached to this world. We have something infinitely greater to win and to look forward to. As Paul says, we can look forward to that great transformation away from this temporary world, even to be like him, ascended in heaven. What a great honor that is for us. And it certainly gives us reason, great reason, to narrow our focus and seek out that great prize. And one of my favorite passages in the Bible, uh, it refers to Abraham and his knowledge of that prize. And that is Hebrews 11, verse 8, beginning. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was, going, when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then skipping down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar off, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them, he has prepared for them a city. And we talk a lot about a sojourner and what that means. Well, Abraham was a sojourner. He knew he didn't belong in this world, and he knew he had the home built by God waiting for him. Certainly he had great and remarkable faith, but he also had a great desire to win. The same desire that we need. And because of that, he won. He wasn't enticed by a perishable home or the perishable wreath. He was laser-focused and looking only for the mansion that the Lord had made for him. And actually that leads us to the very next thing that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, and that is being focused, being purposeful, being intentional. It says in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 9, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not beat, or sorry, I do not box as one beating the air. A runner does not run without direction. If they desire to win, then they are focused only on the finish line. They don't take unnecessary steps to the left or to the right because they know the fastest path is a straight one. Each step they take is calculated, and it's intended to get them to the finish line as fast as possible. Similarly, a boxer does not throw punches for no reason. Each punch is calculated and it's thrown with intention to win. Likewise, our spiritual journey needs to be just like this, focused, purposeful, intentional. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Satan has laid traps all around for us. And not only that, but they are personalized. 
He knows the best ways to trip us up and slow us down. The Hebrew writer mentions something like this too in, in, in Hebrews 12, uh, the sin that so easily ensnares us. And Satan makes it incredibly easy for us to trip and fall. If we are not incredibly careful and purposeful with our steps and our actions, then we will stumble. And this is why it is so important for us to walk circumspectly and wisely. We have to keep our guard up. We have to keep our focus. Distractions can only lead us away from the path and will put us in jeopardy of losing the prize. A winning mindset is deeply correlated to our ability to keep our focus. Paul also mentions the importance of making the best use of the time that we are given. We have to be purposeful about the things we do and how we use uh, our time. Is this or that going to make or put me in the best position to win? Or am I setting myself up for failure? Are our steps intentional? Are we taking the best steps possible to win? All of these are very valuable questions for us to ask ourselves. And what does Jesus say? about our focus or where, where our focus needs to be. Matthew 6, 33, one of passage we're all familiar with. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We have no greater purpose in our lives than to seek the Lord's heavenly kingdom. Our fruits should reflect that purpose in our lives. If we desire to win the prize, we must align our focus, keep in mind our purpose, and take each step intentionally. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, it says in verse 27, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We have to be careful of how we walk, or we may become disqualified. If athletes do not follow the rules, then there are consequences that impede them from winning. We see it all the time. Maybe an athlete takes an illegal enhancing drug or performs an illegal move of some sort. These things can get them disqualified from the competition. For them, maybe it's not, it's not always a very big deal because they can just go on to the next competition. But for us, it's a far more serious matter. There's only one race. And if we disqualify ourselves, there isn't another competition. Thanks to the grace of God... There are steps we can take to repent and get back on track. But if we refuse to run the race according to God's rules, then you will be disqualified. And that is not something you want to happen. Hebrews 10.31 is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is in our best interest to keep ourselves in the race. The consequences are far worse than any of us could ever imagine. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The defiled and unbelieving are despised by God. They are unacceptable, and they are disqualified by their impurity and their impure choices. Their works are are useless, of no use to God. They are unworthy. They will certainly not receive the prize. And the unnerving part about that is that many of these people believe themselves to be practicing good works, worthy of the Lord's calling. They are practicing good works, but are doing it for the wrong reasons, and are therefore disqualified. And And really, that's exactly like the Israelites in Isaiah that we've been studying so much about who were sacrificing according to what the Lord requested of them, except they were doing it on their own terms. They weren't doing it on the Lord's terms. And thus, they were also disqualified. They were unworthy of the prize. None of these were running to win, but rather on their own agenda. Again, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 beginning, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Falling away from the Lord is certainly a fearful thing, and it's something we have to actively avoid. But if we do trip up and fall, which we will, we're not perfect, there is still hope to get back on track 
as long as it is today, as the Hebrew writer explains. And certainly this passage helps us remember that we are not alone in our race. We can use each other to avoid this disqualification and stay on track. And that leads me directly into the next point uh, made by the Hebrew writer. And that's in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1, the very first statement he makes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We know this cloud of witnesses to be all the many of heroes of faith that the writer has just finished discussing. But have you ever really taken a moment to ponder what this means? All these people who have already won their race, that have been successful in their run, they're watching, and they're rooting for you, they're rooting for me. They wish nothing more for us to win that prize too. And I think that's incredibly powerful, significant, and I think very comforting. Knowing that these men and women were able to achieve it makes that imperishable wreath even more obtainable. Knowing that these men and women are cheering us on gives us the comfort and the support that we need to endure in our run. And on top of all this, we are not running this race alone. We have our physical brethren helping us and supporting us as well. Again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, beginning, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, of course, I really don't know how somebody could read this and know this and come to the conclusion that meeting with the brethren to worship the Lord is optional somehow, and that they just throw that out the window if it's necessary. It's just so, so important. Not only does God tell us it's necessary, but if we neglect it, then we put ourselves at a severe disadvantage to engage in the help and support that we need because we're human. And not only that, we need others to push us out of our comfort zones or to let us know when we're falling short. If we neglect this, we are showing that there are things that are more important to us than winning the race that has been set before us. We are not doing all that we can to win, and we are setting ourselves up for failure. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We are imperfect. We are imperfect beings. And we are in need of correction. Our brethren can help us in that, and they can help us, and in turn, we can help them. We are weak emotionally. We are easily swayed by the whims of the world. And edifying our brethren is a gift given from God to counteract that. Sometimes we need encouragement that we just can't provide for ourselves. And obviously, I think that's why God instituted the local church, because we need it to help us win this race, the race that he has set before us. And on top of all that, we also have help from the Lord. Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. God provides us with everything we need to succeed. If we need help and we ask for it, he will provide it. After all, he created all things. In time and space, he will surely guide our steps to victory. Even the best physical athletes need help. They would be foolish to deny it. A true competitor would utilize any advantage that he's been given. Anything that they can use to win, they will use. Likewise, why shouldn't we use, utilize that? Why shouldn't we take advantage of all the help and support available to us that God has made available to us? It would certainly be foolish not to if we desire to win. Also in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we see this, this phrase, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. As a runner, you want to carry as little weight as possible. Any extra weight will just keep you from achieving the best possible time. And that's why even marathon runners oftentimes do not even carry water because they will weigh themselves down and it will be a disadvantage to them. So what kind of things can weigh us down? What baggage do we need to let go of? 
And our baggage is anything that bogs us and slows us down. Such as the worries and stresses and attachments to this world. And these things can certainly slow us down. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. If then, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. If we maintain our focus and our purpose that we had mentioned before, then we can overcome this baggage. We can let go of it. If we set our minds on things above, we won't be worried about the trivial and physical pursuits of this life. Letting go of our baggage is really just a, mind shi- a mindset shift away from this temporal life. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So why should we worry so much about our lives? Only one thing will matter on Judgment Day, and that is how we chose to live our lives, whether we live for the Lord or for our own personal agenda. We won't be taking our money, our possessions, our bodies to the next life. So why should we worry so much about it all? It's unnecessary baggage, and it will slow us down and keep us from winning the prize. Peter also writes along the same lines, 1 Peter, 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. If we live as servants of God, we can be free of any baggage or any worries that may plague us. Of course, we're not free to do evil. Rather, we are free from the entanglements that slow us down in our race. We can run freely with assurance of victory because we did the things that are necessary. Just as a physical runner gets rid of any extra weight, we must also supply ourselves the same advantage because we desire to win the race that's been set before us. Also in Hebrews 12, verse 1, he mentions, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sometimes running is tiresome and it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult to keep the pace. But running is required of us. And without endurance and stamina, we simply won't make it. Endurance is is that boost that keeps us going, even when our body says it's time to stop. Endurance keeps us in the race. Physical runners need it, and so do we. One of the first verses that came to mind when I was thinking about this is, of course, Galatians 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This life is filled with trouble, strife, sickness, and pain. And it's very easy to lose sight of our focus and our purpose. But when we do, we can begin to worry with doing, worry, uh, worry, become weary with uh, doing good. Especially if things continually go bad in our, in our lives. But we cannot lose the hope that's been, uh, that has been set, that set us on this race to begin with. Just because you can't see the finish line right now, doesn't mean it's not there. I remember uh, Brother Rod used to tell this story. Um, I may be misremembering parts of it, but uh, he used to be a runner, and he was competing in this long race uh, out somewhere where you couldn't see the entire track. And as I remember, he's winning the race for a majority of the time, but towards the end, he becomes tired. He still couldn't see the finish line. I was beginning to think of slowing down. Finally, he reached the top of one more hill, and he still couldn't see the finish line, so he decided to slow down and rest a little. Now a few of the runners passes him, and he starts to make. And they make their way over the next hill. Um, but as he reached the top of that next hill, he saw clearly that the finish line was just at the bottom of that hill, and he, he lost that race because of that. If he had just continued a little longer, 
then he would have won that race. And it's, of course, like that analogy of the miner who's digging for gold. And he digs and digs. can't find any. And after even a great deal of persistence, he gives up. And then you see that picture showing the gold that was just one more swing away. Like both these examples, we may feel hopeless. We may feel weary with doing good, but there's simply too much on the line for us to take a rest or give up. That prize is waiting for us if we do endure just a little bit longer. After all, 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Even though the things all around us are passing away, we have to hold the faith and we have to endure because it's just for a little time longer especially on the scale of eternity. Though we may not see the finish line, and most of us probably don't, we know it's there because God has told us so, and we know the prize awaiting for us if we press on. A physical athlete is not shaken in the face of pain and fatigue. They relish in it, knowing it will all be worth it in the end. And certainly, we must hold the same attitude and just endure a little more. And there's one more thing that I'd like to cover, and that is the, the last thing that the Hebrew writer mentions. This example that we have of looking to the Savior, looking to Jesus. Again, Hebrews 12, verse 2, beginning, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Everyone needs an example. Someone that we can look to in order to, to show us how something is done. Physical athletes look to someone they consider to be the best at their sport or best at their craft. Uh, luckily, our example is much greater. It's our perfect Savior, the victor, the winner of our faith. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, beginning. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. The fight against sin has already been decided, and Jesus is the victor. Verse 10, every knee will bow. Jesus has already defeated sin and death. Why shouldn't we look to him as an example and follow his footsteps? Even the world understands this concept. When you want to be successful at something, you look to the best for advice and example. If I want to become a great basketball player, I watch the professionals and see how differently they act from the rest. And I try to emulate their habits and patterns and hopes of emulating their, also their success. And this process is no different for us. Jesus is the victor. We must strive to imitate him. We must strive to emulate him. And what does Jesus do? Well, we just read it. His, his, his winning mindset. Verse 3 uh, verse 3 through 8, a humble and unselfish servant, not considering what he deserved, but choosing to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the winner and the victor. 
And he has ensured us victory if we follow in his path. Like I said, Jesus has already won. He's already won the race. We can look to his steps to see the best path toward victory. His example is open for anyone to look at. And he has given all the an- given us all the answers that we need. All the answers that are going to be on the test, we have them because of him. All we need to do is fill them in. He has left us nothing to figure out for ourselves except whether we want to win or lose. If we desire that crown as we should, then we will look to Jesus. As he says in John, John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if we desire to win as we should, then our next steps should be to find out how to win. And luckily, we of course covered that God does not leave us, or leave that up for us to figure out. He has carefully laid out what we need to do and how we must run the race that's been set before us. We are not a lost and confused people as the world believes us to be. We have purpose and we live for something far greater than this temporal life. And on top of that, if we follow the steps necessary, we are guaranteed victory. And I think that gives us the energy and the confidence we need. That nothing stands in the way of us winning except ourselves. How how much we are willing to give up in order to win. What a great God our Lord is. How lucky we are to have a Savior like Jesus. And so there remains a question that I would like to, for each and every one of us to consider today. Are you running to win? Are we competing to obtain the prize? Hopefully the answer is yes. And even if it is yes, we still have work to do. None of us here have crossed that finish line yet. That means we still have a race to run. And we can't afford to become stagnant or comfortable. I urge you to continue on, to endure a little longer. Our reward is not afar off. Again in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 37, beginning, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. But maybe your answer is no to that question. Maybe you have not been running as you should. Maybe you haven't even started your race. And if your answer is no, there's still time for you to change it. You can begin begin running your race Or you can get back on track to running the way that we must, the way that we're called to. And so if you're here today and you recognize that you need some help, uh, we are here today to help you with that. If you need help in beginning that race, we can do that. If you need help in getting back on track in that race, we can help you with that as well. However you're listening to this lesson, I know we, we post these online. If you're, Maybe you're even listening online. And, and you know that there's some things you need to change. Contact us and we can help. In any way we can help, we would love to help you with that. Whatever your need is, we would love, love to help you if you would just come forward as we stand and sing.